it's it's been a year of incredible surprises to me. Um, I think what has most surprised me about this last year is how much I am blown away by God's goodness in in sending me here. I, I describe my coming here like me accidentally coming upon a treasure uh, that I would never, never, never have 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 chosen, and I would have picked something far less, far less of a joy. And it is such a such an honor and a privilege to be here and serve you guys. Um, and that's that's what I want to say to you guys. Uh, let's turn to God's word now. Um, open up your Bibles to Matthew four. And before we um, get into the Bible, let's uh, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you tell us to come after you. To come and follow you in discipleship. We admit that we are weak, that we have weak hearts and weak minds and weak bodies, but we pray through your word that you would strengthen us for this work, that you would um, give us grace even now to follow you better this day. In your name, amen. A worse night could not have been chosen. Darkness was becoming oppressive now. The the only warmth, the only comfort was that embrace that the bitter cold would give you. His mind raced with confusion as his feet carried him through that night. His soul was out of breath. He was exhausted. He, He had awoken from a bad dream into a nightmare. As Peter stole his way through the streets of Jerusalem, he was no longer that bold lion of yore. He was a timid little mouse. He was was no longer that rock that he thought he was. Right there, he was dissolving like a pile of sand. He followed the mob as as close as he could. He made his way to the high priest's home, but he kept his distance. He feared recognition. The gate was kept by a little girl. She, She apparently was too much for this big old fisherman. It was his fellow uh, disciple, John, who actually got him through the gate. John, his family had been known to the high priest, and John helped him get in, but Peter would have never gone in on his own. Um, he, he didn't really want to go inside the house. He just wanted to get as close as he could to see what would happen. So he, he stationed himself with the servants in the courtyard around a fire. The temperature of that night continued to sink. And the fire gave off the only comfort to be had that night. He he could hear from inside the house fierce cross-examination. He could hear uh, repeated insults and, and slapping. How can this be happening? 
he said to himself. And, and just as he did, he, he peered across that little glow of the fire and he saw a face staring at him as though she was slowly coming to recognize who he was. She said to him, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. It was that servant girl from the gate. He, he, he denied it almost before she could even finish speaking. He, he tried to escape the courtyard now, but, but just as he was doing that, another girl spotted him. And a finger pointed at him. And a shrill voice reverberated across the courtyard. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Denial was becoming like breathing now. I don't know that man, he said. But that darkness that was so oppressive a moment ago that that he could not escape from, that same darkness suddenly deserted him. He couldn't find any corner to hide in, any shadow to keep away from the jeering eyes of others. Another random person said to him, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Oh no, he must have thought. Curse your mouth, Peter. Why did you even say anything? Why did you even come here in the first place? I I need to get away. I need to get far away. I, I must get far away from here before something like that happens to me. Peter began to to shout now. He called down curses upon himself, swearing in the strongest possible terms that he could, I do not know the man. Quiet followed. Quiet enough for Peter to hear that crow from the rooster. It was meaningless to all except to Peter and to Jesus. The gospel writer Luke tells us at this point that Jesus' eyes, wherever he was in this entire scene, wherever Jesus was at, Jesus' eyes found Peter and looked at him. Perhaps he heard the rooster crow. Perhaps he heard all of Peter's denials, especially when they reached their height. Perhaps. But perhaps maybe because he was God, he had seen the whole thing. He had heard everything. He he saw the first blinks of fatigue that Peter made even way back in the garden. When Peter started to fall asleep, he saw every doubting thought, every coward's turn, every traitorous denial. He saw and he heard everything. He heard it all long before he met Peter. Peter also heard that cry And that's when he remembered Jesus' words. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And with this, Peter went out, 
into the darkness alone. He had failed. What went wrong? When did Peter fail? Where was it that Peter got off track? How does this happen? And more importantly, you're probably thinking like I am, how does this happen to me? When do I get off track? When do I fail? When is it that my eyes first begin to blink shut with faithlessness to my Lord Jesus Christ? Tonight in our passage, we are going to see uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And consequently, we're also going to see when that moment of failure happens, when it happens to me and when it happens to you. So here we are, Matthew chapter 4. There are many, by the way, there are many descriptions of what a, a Christian might look like. Many believe a Christian be... Um, they are a Christian because of some kind of family they grew up in or maybe a church they belong to. Many believe they're Christians because of some profession they made, whether it's at a summer camp or, or somewhere in their life. Many think they're Christians because of some emotional or spiritual experience they've had. Many believe they are Christians because maybe they were baptized. Many believe they're Christians because they, they go to the right church or they don't go to the wrong church. Many believe they're Christians because of something that they have done or perhaps something they haven't done. Hey, I serve every week. I, I teach Sunday school. I love singing all of those songs. I give sacrificially. Many maybe believe they're Christians because of some sort of position they hold in the church. And all of these things, perhaps most of these things are good things, but, but is, this, is this what a Christian is? There are probably many right answers to what a Christian is. But tonight in our passage, I just want to examine just, just what a Christian is from the, the perspective of Jesus. How would Jesus describe a Christian? What is Jesus after in his followers? In Matthew 4, 18 through 22, Jesus calls his first disciples. And, and in doing so... Watch this. The Holy Spirit highlights something for us. He highlights through the pen of Matthew two demands of the follower of Jesus. If you are a disciple of Christ, Jesus makes two demands of you. What are those? Well, we read, we're going to read slowly through our passage and just let it develop on its own. And I want you to pay very close attention. Matthew is very unique among the gospel writers. He, it, he has this economy of words about him while he's telling a story. For example, when Mark tells a story, he makes it as dramatic and as flashy as possible. When Matthew tells a story, it's almost like Matthew just can't wait to get to the end to tell you the point. So he uses few words. He uses a high economy of language to communicate his point. That's why we've got to pay attention to every single word. Everyone is significant. So, so if you're like me, and you're really good at taking notes, and you want to take notes now, just write a one, um, 
just for point number one, I'm going to tell you what point number one is to, is a little bit later after I give a little bit of background information. So just leave it blank. That'll also keep you curious and keep you awake. Let's let's read verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, the rock, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This is an account, by the way, of Jesus' first calling of his probably would be some of his closest disciples. He, he, he would meet these men again and call them again if you want to look at Luke 5, but we won't look at that tonight. Um, Andrew and Simon were brothers. They were probably working together in a family fishing business called Zebedee and Sons. By the way, the name was soon to change to Zebedee and Serfs. Just keep reading. You'll find out. Um, Luke 5 tells us that um, Andrew and, and Simon, Andrew and Peter, were partners with James and John in the business. Um, Mark 1, 10 or 20 talks about how Zebedee's father was successful enough to have hired servants. He was doing pretty well for himself. Matter of fact, in John, John 18, 15, there's this kind of this hint that Zebedee is a man of influence. He not only is known in Galilee, but he's also known in Judah and Jerusalem. He is known, probably his family is known, among the high priests. So Andrew and Peter are fishermen in Zebedee's business. They're probably hired servants or hired hands, whatever you want to call it. Probably hired hands. And notice we see here Andrew Andrew and Peter are doing something specific. They are casting a net into the sea. Now, there's, there's, a, there's several different words that Matthew could have chosen to describe this net. There, there, there are two basic kinds of nets. There's, there's this big net called a drag net that we see in Matthew 13 to talk about th- this, this net that can drag all the, all the fish, hopefully from all the shores, in, into the, onto the beach. The, what would happen is they'd have this big, huge net. They'd put um, buoys on, t- on one end, and then they'd put kind of anchors on the bottom. And then these boats would go out into the deep, and then they'd put down these nets. And so it would make this kind of wall that men from the shore would then pull in. And then they'd have all sorts of fish. Great for fishing business cleans out the ocean kind of business, you know, and also collects trees and things like that. There's, there's another kind of net, a smaller net that comes in several sizes. It's a casting net. Um, th- there could either be a really small casting net or a larger casting net used to throw out of the, be- uh, the boat. It would be pear-shaped, and it would have this, this opening around the wide end, and they'd put rocks around the wide end, and this is how they did it. They'd see some fish whether it was on shore or in a boat, and they'd throw the net so it would land perfectly straight onto the water, and then the rocks or the weights would, would go down first, and then the fish, like the, like the foolish fish that they are, would swim straight up into the net, and voila, fish souffle didn't even have to go to McDonald's. Just like that. Um, just, just so you know, of these two nets, one required a lot of skill, and one required no skill. It doesn't take much work to pull a net in when you're standing on shore. Anyone can do that. I can do that. 
But make, making a net, like a casting net, land flat on the surface, finding, finding the fish, knowing where to search for them, that takes a little bit of skill. So we see here that Andrew and Peter are, are doing one of these casting nets, one of these skill-requiring nets. And notice the, the point that Matthew really wants to drive home. They were fishermen. This wasn't just a pastime. They weren't just walking along the shore of Galilee and said, hey, there's some fellows uh, dragging in a, a dragnet. Let's get in on the, uh, on the goods here. No, this was their job. This is what they did all the time. This is, this is where their skills lied. This is where they had the greatest ability. This, this job being a fisherman is what they were associated as and characterized by. This is where they felt comfortable. They liked being fishermen. This is who they were. A fisherman was their identity. Like today, occupations come with kind of a reputation. Um, you get you, you kind of get a status, a show, social status that comes with an occupation, or or stigmatism, perhaps. There's all sorts of occupations in the New Testament world. Men were known for what they did. Women were known for who they raised. You could be a carpenter, like Jesus's father was always known as the carpenter. You could be a banker, you could be a tax collector, you could be a slave, you could be a servant, you could be a farmer, a vineyard owner, you could be a shepherd, you could be a fisherman, you could be a guard, a gatekeeper, a soldier, a nurse, a physician, a tent maker, a potter, a tanner, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. You could be all of these things. Well, that last one was a joke. Um, with, with an occupation, yes, came stigmatism. So, for example, if you were a tax collector, you were lumped together with the prostitutes and the sinners. Read through your Gospels. They're always together. A tax collector was basically a synonym for a sinner. Someone who was heinous. Someone who was unforgivable. That was the stigma that you lived with and you considered it worthwhile if you were a tax collector. If you were a shepherd, you also received a little bit of spiritual uh, um, stigmatism. You were considered spiritually inferior. Just, just, I mean, you guys understand this. Their best friends were sheep. They spent all their time with sheep. That would do something to me socially. And on top of that, because they spent so much time with sheep, they were they, they couldn't... They couldn't join the community in religious and community activities. They, they were kind of like the spiritually, not totally outcast, but yeah, not really there, kind of. If you were a tanner, someone who dried hides to make leather, you actually had to keep your house far away from town because all those chemicals stunk. And I imagine you smelled. Oh, he's a tanner. You were assigned a kind of status based upon your occupation, similar to today. If you were a fisherman, yes, you had a good, you had a stable job. Fishermen probably made more money than common day laborers or even probably beyond that, but you were still a fisherman. You were rough. You, you were tough. You handled boats, not people. Your, your hands were calloused from hauling in nets and handling slippery and prickly fish. 
You worked long nights, and probably you never really got rid of that fishy fragrance, right? You were a fisherman. This is who Andrew and Peter were. This was their identity. They were fishermen. And Jesus, I love this, Jesus comes up to these guys, and what does he say? Verse 19, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, come after me, mirror me, make your life be patterned after me. In those days, in those days actually, this this happened a little bit differently. This tells us a lot about Jesus. Usually, a disciple would go searching for his rabbi. The rabbi wouldn't go searching for his disciple. Usually, a disciple would not just pick up on the words that the rabbi spoke, but he would also pick up on his mannerisms and his idiosyncrasies. This disciple wanted to learn everything he could from this rabbi. He wanted to become just like him. I heard a, a kind of funny story a while ago about, about a really old rabbi. He's like 80 years old or something like that, hobbling down the street, and behind him hobbled four 20-year-old disciples. You wanted to become like him. You thought everything he did was great, wonderful. That was your identity, being a follower of so-and-so. And what does Jesus call them to? He says, follow me and become fishers of men. He's calling them to a new kind of occupation. He's calling them to a new kind of life. No longer are they just to be fish catchers. He wants them to be men catchers, just like him. And remember the the kind of writer that Matthew is. Watch the words he uses. Verse 20, immediately. A word used to speak of sudden, unprecedented, and even outrageous action. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. They left their nets. Here, Matthew uses just a slightly different word. It's a more general word for nets. This, This word could refer to any kind of net. Big net, small net, any kind of net. It's even used to refer to a net to capture animals. That's how general of a term it is. It refers to probably not just their casting net. It refers to all their nets. They left all of their nets. They left their whole entire life behind them. Try this. Substitute the word nets for occupation. They left who they were. They left what they were primarily associated with. They felt they left where they were comfortable. They left what they were characterized by. That is what they left. They took on a new primary association. They took on a new primary characteristic. They are followers now. They're no longer Andrew and Peter the fishermen. They are now Andrew and Peter the followers of Jesus. Fishers of men. And and in this way, Matthew paints this beautifully simple picture of discipleship. And he gives us our first demand. If you are a follower of Jesus, Christ demands this of you. You must 
trade your identity for Christ's. You must trade who you are, your identity, for Christ's identity. You are no longer associated by anything else than by following Jesus. Do you know? Do you know what's most true of you? Do you know more than anything else, if you are a follower of Christ, that is your identity now? That is who you are that is what's most true about you, what should most characterize your life, that is, that is ultimately who you are. I mean, it doesn't mean that if you're a Christ, you have to quit your job and become a full-time follower of Jesus. Maybe some people do, but probably if you're thinking you have to do that, you don't understand what it means to follow Christ. For, for example, in the New Testament, we see the New Testament written to just one group of people, ultimately, to believers, to saints. That's how the New Testament letters begin, right? Everyone's spiritually equal in Christ. Everyone is bought with a price. Everyone is slaves of Christ. Everyone is called to be holy and has a high calling. But then, at the end of the letters, all of them, right, we see different kinds of Christians appearing. We see husbands and wives. We see slaves and masters. That's Ephesians. We see rich people and we see widows or poor. That's 1 Timothy. We see old and young. That's 1 Peter. Now, Christians don't stop being these things. But being a husband, get this, being a wife, being wealthy or being poor, being young or being old is no longer your primary or ultimate identity. That's not who you are. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a saint. You are a Christian, a little Christ, someone who's trying to be like Christ. It doesn't mean you, you can't be these other things. It just means these other things aren't who you are most. If you are... If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus more than you are a man bringing home the bacon. You are a follower of Jesus more than you are a woman raising your family. You are a follower of Jesus more than you are an employer or an employee. You are a follower of Jesus more than you are a son or a daughter. You're a follower of Jesus more than you're a husband or a wife, a father, whether you're public schooled or private schooled or homeschooled, whether you're American, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're a friend or whether you are an enemy, whether you are a high school student or a junior high student, whether you're an elderly saint or a, a new convert, whether you're young or old, whether you're a man or a woman. And by the way, you... you all these roles that you, you are still aren't ultimately what you are, but if, if you are a follower of Christ that informs these roles, that motivates these roles that you play, you aren't just a husband because you feel like being one today, but because you're a follower of Christ, and Christ calls you to love your wives as yourself. You're not a wife today because you feel like being one today, but because you are a follower of Christ. That's what's ultimate about you. Your identity is not wrapped up in any kind of feeling. 
any kind of urge, any kind of impulse. Your identity is, hey, I am a follower of Christ. That is who I am. You're not ultimately an age group. You're not ultimately a tax bracket or a net worth. You're not ultimately an SAT or an ACT score. You're not an employee, a nationality, a race, or even a gender. You are ultimately a follower of Christ. Your identity is Christ's identity. You follow him. This is where you start. What happens when your starting point is all wrong, right? Later tonight, Serena and I are going to go on a little trip to Minnesota. And we're tired of the whole flying thing, so we're going to try driving this time. Now, what happens? What happens to that entire car ride? If, if for the first four hours, I go dead in the wrong direction. It throws off everything, right? We spend the rest of the trip irritated at one another and trying to catch up to where we were, possibly. It throws everything off. In, in the same way, if, you're, if your focal point in your life is off, where you find your identity, that being a follower of Christ, all of these other areas of your life, all these rules, all these callings that you have as a man or a woman or anything are totally thrown off. You start following them as if they are the most. They are the ultimate thing, not following Christ. And by the way, if you, if you miss this, you probably won't just be a few hours behind. You'll probably never get back on the right track. How do you know? How do you know what is most ultimate in your life? Well, well, it is something that you cannot leave to follow Christ. So fill in the blank. You cannot leave blank to follow Christ. That is what's ultimate in your life if there's anything else. Or to put it in another way, you get angry if you can't have blank. Or you sin to get blank. Or you sin because you can't get blank. You are a follower. That is your identity. You must trade your identity for Christ's identity. That's what it means to be a Christian. What else does Jesus demand, though, of his followers? You can put another number two and leave it blank. Verse verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in, in a boat with Zebedee, their fathers, mending their nets. And he called them. And look what it says. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. In the boat with their father. You notice that phrase? They were in the boat with their father. They were in the family business, right? They, they were developing and building up their future. Remember, Zebedee had possessions. He even had hired servants. He was doing really well for himself. They were working on a very profitable future inheritance. This was their future. This was their family. They were in the boat with their father. Now, it's good to work hard, Right? It's good to honor your father, to honor your family. It's good to invest in your future. The Bible talks about that all over the place. But look at what Matthew does. 
He puts all of those good things, those right loyalties, right next to Jesus and see who wins. You must trade your identity for Christ's identity, but the second demand is this. If you are a follower, you must treasure Jesus above everything. You must treasure Jesus above everything else. He must be most important to you. Notice they left the boat. They they didn't leave their nets. Uh, Matthew wants us to notice that they left the boat. And he also wants us to notice that they left their father. They left their boat, their future. They left their father, their family. In a sense, you could say they made a greater sacrifice than Peter or Andrew's sacrifice. They left their treasure. Two possible treasures that we could pull from this text would be one, a a treasure of holding family above Christ. Jesus Jesus talks a lot about this, words that make a father like myself, very uncomfortable. But but look over in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The word worthy means they don't deserve me. They can't be, they, they can't be my follower. But what does it take to follow Christ? Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It may very well be that the cross you have to bear is losing a family relationship that you really care about. It doesn't mean you automatically lose family, but it means this might be a cost. Are you willing to pay it? Crosses, by the way, in that time were a symbol of death, a symbol of suffering. The Romans set them up in strategic places just to intimidate people. They killed criminals right outside the city gates to tell people, this is what will happen to you if you do not obey. When Jesus says cross, he's not saying this little decoration that we carry around our neck, take up my cross, I can do that any day. No, he's saying, are you ready to die? Are you ready to actually die? Maybe not physically, but are you ready to lose relationships in your family because you are now a follower of Christ? Another possible treasure that could come between you and Christ, we see here in our passage, would probably be money. Money is a tricky little thing. There are two men in the Gospel of Matthew that have so many things in common. Both were rich. Both were dissatisfied with their lives. Both came face to face with Jesus. And at the same time, both came face to face with their heart. 
their treasure. The first man we see in Matthew 19. 19, turn over there, 19. The heading says, The rich young man, behold, in verse 16, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And then Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away very sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus says, if, if you would be perfect... That, that word there is, is the same word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount for, for what God wants of everyone. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, you could translate it, you must be wholehearted as your heavenly Father is wholehearted. God just doesn't want you to obey all these external things. He also wants a heart that flows through all of these things, a whole heart towards God. If you are going to have a whole heart towards God, this is what is coming in between you and God. Your money. Doesn't mean everybody has to give away all they have, but this man needed to because he loved money, right? He couldn't do it. He came face to face with Jesus, face to face with his treasure, and he walked away. I would rather have treasure on earth. The other man might not have been as rich but he certainly was well off. Um, he wasn't the big fish tax collector that Zacchaeus was, but he was doing pretty well for himself. He had a house. He had a tax booth, a constant stream of revenue. Only problem is he had to sell his soul to get it. He was a tax collector. He was a sinner. Maybe Matthew would have said to himself, I have gone too far. There is no hope for me. I am heinous. I am sinful. I am unforgivable. That's who Matthew, the very writer of this gospel, was. That was his identity. That's who he was. And I love this. Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Jesus comes up to Matthew. Tax collector Matthew. And he says this in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. Later on, when he's being confronted by the Pharisees about hanging out with such uh, unnoble citizens, 
Jesus says, verse 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I did not come to call those kinds of people that have it all together. I came to call the failures, the worthless, those who had no shot at the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying to to Matthew, in not so many words, he's saying, follow me. He's saying, Matthew, you can stay at your tax booth right now, or you can follow me. You can be righteous. You You can stay here, or you can give this up and follow me. What does Matthew say? Obviously, the Spirit of God was working on him before this point. He looked at his his tax booth. He looked at all of his world and his treasures. And he says, I want Jesus more. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. How do you know what your treasure is? How How do you know what you're following? Well, we'll fill in the blank. You can't leave blank to follow Jesus. You get angry when you can't have blank. You sin to get blank. You sin because you didn't get blank. By the way, that's those are the same questions biblical counselors use to identify idols of the heart, things we worship and bow down to. Things you cannot leave behind. So here we have the two demands of Jesus The two demands that he makes of his followers, you must trade your identity for mine. You must treasure me above everything else. Why is this important? Why why is this important? Remember what I said in the beginning? Why why is this important? Well, just look back, Matthew chapter 4, where we were, where we were in verse 23 through 25. Many people are following Jesus. Jesus is real popular. But only a few follow Jesus the way he demands. Jesus seeks a certain kind of follower. Jesus gets all sorts of followers, but that doesn't mean everybody who's following Jesus is automatically a follower of Jesus. And number two, this is important, that if you don't get this, if If your identity is off, if your treasure is off, you will fail. Let's just look at the Peter example. Where where did Peter go wrong? When did he fail? When he stopped following Jesus, right? When he started following something else besides Jesus. You don't have to follow me. I'm going to go over to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, verse 28. The waters are raging. The storm is howling around the disciples. And Jesus comes out to them on the water in the fourth watch of the night. Verse 25 says, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, do not be afraid, it is I. And then Peter 
Good old Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Peter, you're walking on the water. Keep following Jesus. But then he starts to follow something else. His fears. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink and he cried out saying, Lord, save me. A few pages later in chapter 16, Peter Peter starts to follow his brains, his mind, his thinking, his will, really. He's Mr. Know-it-all. Jesus starts telling his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem to die, to be beaten and whipped. He tells his disciples everything that's about to happen to him. And in verse 21 through 23, uh, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter stopped following Jesus when he, when he started following his plan, his program. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter follows his Jewishness. You remember the account where, where he's eating with the Gentiles, their meat. Some, some Jews come along and then Peter instantly backs away in fear. I am a Jew. I can't be seen doing this. And where we were earlier in Matthew 26, turn there. It's important to see the, the very words that are used to describe it. In Matthew 26... Verses 69, we see Peter following his shame. Matthew 26, verse 69, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, Look at this, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystander, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, but I, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are one of them. For your accent betrays you. And then verse 74, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed, and he went out and wept bitterly. Notice that. You are associated with him. You're one of his followers. That's your identity. Jesus, and Peter denied it. Now, maybe perhaps you, you catch yourself feeling, how in the world can I follow Jesus? I don't have strength for this. I don't have abilities for this. My heart is weak. I am too frightened. I have nothing to offer to God spiritually. I have no strength. Believe it or not, you if that is your heart, are in a perfect position to truly follow Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, our Lord says this right after this account of what it means to be a disciple. He says this, 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What happens when you trade your worthless identity for Christ's identity? You are a citizen of heaven. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness alone. What happens? Poor in spirit. When you have nothing to offer spiritually, you get everything spiritually. That is a great place to be in. And when I am humbled, when I am weak, when I don't feel like I can go forward anymore, that is what I must cling to and hold to and treasure this gospel message. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. For they shall be satisfied. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the blessing of your word. I pray that as we go from this night, we would go as followers of you not as followers of ourselves or our 401ks or our position or praise, but we are followers of you. That is what is absolute and true. Pray these things now in your name. Amen.